the expectation that the United States can come and somehow solve the problem or have some kind of a solution or act as a mediator is ludicrous. The United States is a full participant in the atrocities against Palestinians, a full participant. They pay for it. They send the money and the weapons to allow it to happen. And the collaboration is so deep that even the JDL, which here in the U.S., I mean, they come sometimes to protest, to beat people up. It's really a gang. They were taken off terrorist list partly because the state of Israel announced that there's no such thing as Jewish terrorism. Welcome to the Miko Peled Podcast. Welcome to the Miko Peled Podcast. Recording live from Miko's car. Um, <laughs> I'm in my living room, dining room, bedroom, aka my studio apartment. How's it going, Miko? It's going well. I got some stuff. <laughs> I got someone in the apartment working, so I got to be in the car to do this because it's too noisy. But the good thing is it's really nice and sunny. And so uh, nice and warm in the car and very comfortable. That's lovely. There's a great tradition of middle-aged white men doing recordings in their car. It's more for right-wingers, but you know what? We on the left, we can take it back. Are you saying I'm not a transcender? Or you think somebody already did this? Yeah, it's uh, quite popular with angry right-wing men. Uh, re recording recording in the car, yeah. Maybe well, you know, as we're chatting about recording in the car, I'm looking at the front page of Mariv, which is the one of the two biggest papers in Israel. And so oh, they're talking about the new treasury secretary, finance secretary, Smotrich, who is this monstrous racist, homophobe. I think you mentioned settler. it before. Yeah, several times. And so he, every day, he, so there's things about what a great job he's doing with his lowering taxes and lowering prices and just how wonderful he is. Then the Israeli foreign minister is going to Khartoum to finalize the peace agreement between Israel and Sudan. Netanyahu met with the president of Chad. Leo DiCaprio's new girlfriend is an Israeli. An All right, Miko, where are you going? Israeli. Miko, where are you going with this? I'm just saying Palestinians are being killed left and center. There's this I racist think. monstrosity yeah. is now in power. And this is what the, you know, this is the main paper, one of the main papers. This is what they're talking about. I see. Yeah. This is what they're talking about. Leo DiCaprio's new girlfriend that she's an Israeli. Of course, we're so proud. And I'm going down, just keep down and down and down and a little bit. And then there's no mention of anything that has to do with this thing called Palestine. Oh, finally, the very bottom, something about who will inherit Abu Mazen to be the head of the Palestinian Authority, which of course is an issue of absolutely no consequence whatsoever other than to the bank account of the next guy. I mean, this is the Israeli papers. This is the Israeli papers. It's such a reflection of Israeli society and how little they care and how little they think that any of this ongoing genocide, ongoing apartheid, having in place these people who are dedicated and devoted to destroying Palestine and destroying Palestinian lives. You know, nothing. nothing. I'm going down to Ynet, which is the other major newspaper. I mean, and so I there's read, you know, nothing, something about Titanic. And so uh, is there much coverage, but you're not even seeing stuff about the killing of the Israeli settlers in East Jerusalem? Even the, the thing that happened a few days ago. Yeah, that's not getting oh, much coverage a, either. That's old news. Done. Wow. So it's, it seems like it's getting more coverage in the US. We, we killed the bad guys. We killed the bad guys and we're moving on. Wow. 
something about Netanyahu's trial, his conflict, he's got the, him and the, and the attorney general are bashing heads, but nothing, nothing, gossip, gossip, and some <laughs> and, sports. And how, but we should be clear, we're mainly going to, what you said you wanted to mainly talk about today is U.S. Secretary of State Blinken visit Israel and Palestine. What, is there much coverage of that? And what do you want to say about that? What's interesting about that is that this happened today, a day, two days ago. I mean, I mean, nothing. I mean, this just happened a few days ago. You would think there would be some, I don't know, some coverage going on a little bit more about this, that, or the other. And that's it. It's, it's come and gone. The only thing I see here is from last thing I see was written about this was from yesterday and how he met this and how he met that and how he shook hands with this and how he shook hands. There's nothing, just absolutely nothing. And the point is, and that I'm trying to make here, and there is, there is a point at the end of this rant, and that is that if anybody saw the, uh, the press conference that he had with Netanyahu, and I get asked this a lot, I've been doing a lot of interviews late, last few days, what do we expect? I mean, how will the Americans do something? And how are the Americans could do they have the ability to stop the, uh, the new wave of violence? And the State Department took the JDL off non-terrorist organizations list about last year. Can you say what JDL stands for? The JDL is the Jewish Defense League. It is this organization that was created by Mayor Kahana, who was a racist fanatic who actually was American, but he lived in Israel for a very long time. And he had one term in the Knesset even. And his students now, his like real close followers who still admire him and still talk about him as a great rabbi and a spiritual leader. Including Ben Gavir, right? The main person of who, which is Itamar Ben Gavir, who is now the bazaar of all defense and security and everything that has to do pretty much with the lives of Palestinians, they were on the known terrorist list together with a bunch of Palestinian organizations like the PSLP and even the PLO. And the PLO is still on the terrorist list in the State Department. I'm and sorry, talk I about have, what, have to do my job and say, what's the PLO? Oh, that's fine. The PLO is a Palestine liberation organization. It's the mainstream, largest, most well-known and recognized Palestine liberation organization. It's a coalition of, used to be a coalition that included all the, all parts of Palestinian society, both within and outside of Palestine. That was reduced in the 90s after what was called the Oslo Peace Accords into the PA or the Palestinian Authority. And who was most Pal associated with the PLO? The Fatah Party. And today, the president of the Palestinian Authority, which is... But wasn't it, wasn't it uh, Yasser Arafat? Who's PLO? He used to be Arafat, yes. Arafat I think he's the most famous person associated. And, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. In the past, yes. Of course, he's been dead for a while. But yeah, he was the head of the PLO. And what they did in the 90s when the Oslo peace process took place, they gutted it and turned it into this puppet regime, which is really subcontracting and managing the occupation for Israel for benefits for just any other corrupt regime, which is very sad. But the PLO itself, even though the Secretary of State meets with them and they go to the UN and they even used to have an office here in DC until Trump kicked them out, is still on the terrorist list. There's a list of, it's called the terrorist list of organizations that the US considers terrorists. And the JDA, the Jewish Defense League, which is the US branch of the Kahana, Ben Gvir, and that whole extremely radical, thuggish, gang of racist Zionists, it was recognized as a terrorist organization. And last year, the State Department removed it. Now, and over the last year, they've been able to raise a great deal of money through all kinds of nonprofits here in the U.S. that work for them. One being Regavim, it's a quite well-known, incredibly racist, anti-Palestinian organization. 
And they've been raising a lot of money. And now we see the Ben Gvir and his group had huge success in the elections. So my point is that somehow the expectation that the United States can come, the Secretary of State can come and somehow solve the problem or somehow come and have some kind of a solution or act as a mediator is ludicrous. The United States is a full participant in the atrocities against Palestinians, a full participant. They pay for it. They send the money and the weapons to allow it to happen. And the collaboration is so deep that even the JDL, which is here in the U.S., I mean, they come sometimes to protest, to beat people up. They're a bunch of gang. It's really a gang. They were taken off the terrorist list partly because the state of Israel announced that there's no such thing. And this is, this is, has to do with legislation within Israeli politics. There's no such thing as Jewish terrorism. Because terrorism has to be widespread. It has to have, it has to be like a phenomenon. According to them, in the case of Jewish terrorism, it's not Jewish terrorism. It's just a few single acts here and there of violence that are not connected in any way, shape, or form. Never mind the fact that there's an entire movement and ideology that is pushing this forward. So Israel announced this. And now, of course, in the United States followed suit. And what the people expect Blinken or any secretary of state for them would possibly do when they come to visit, especially at a time right now, which is so volatile and so dangerous. And the Palestinians announced that they stopped the security and cooperation coordination with Israel. And so what's he going to do? And what he did was he gave a few million dollars to the Palestinian, to the PA, to the president, to basically that goes in the pockets of the top of the PA people. And then that they will get four 4G internet because Israel only allowed 3G internet within the West Bank. So now they will get 4G. And I'll add one more thing to this because it's relevant. There have been reports that the previous government did meet and have some connection with the Palestinian Authority. They really, pretty much the entirety of the relationship or the discussions were how many more VIP passes will the Palestinian Authority get? And VIP passes are passes that allow people who live in the West Bank to travel in and out of the West Bank and to fly when they fly overseas from Tel Aviv, as opposed to going to Jordan, which is what Palestinians in the West Bank have to do. The Palestinian Authority takes the passes and then sells them for tens of thousands of dollars to rich business people, to individuals, and they pocket the money. In other words, these are handed out by Abu Mazen to his closest people. And that's how these ministers, so ministers of the Palestinian Authority just make unbelievable amounts of money. That's why they're so rich. They get these passes and they don't give them, they sell them to individuals and they pocket the money. And that was the discussions or negotiations, if you will, whatever they want to call them, between Palestinian Authority and the previous Israeli government. Now, Blinken came and he probably offered a few more little perks for the, for this elite that was created in, in Palestinian society. But that's it. I mean, any expectation that there would be anything good coming out of the United States intervention is, is absurd. It's just absolutely. So that's my thing about this. I think it's a really important perspective. I mean, so often it's portrayed as Jews versus Muslims, Jews versus Arabs or whatever. We always have to keep in mind, it's usually the powerful elite versus everyone else. It's a supremacist against those who don't share privilege and who are oppressed, whether they're occupied or it's an apartheid regime or in other countries where it's race-based and color-based and skin color-based. But the supremacists basically, in this particular case, the supremacists happen to be Israeli Jews who are getting their way and making sure that nobody gets in their way of getting their way. 
And certainly, Anthony Blinken is not the guy that's going to bring about some kind of breakthrough. I mean, what else do you expect, though, from the Biden administration? You're saying nothing. It's interesting. So on the one hand, we saw Blinken and Netanyahu for going on about this myth of the Israeli democracy. Israeli democracy is, a, is an oxymoron. Israel was never intended to be, never planned to be, and never was a democracy. It was planned as an apartheid state. It was, it is, an, it was an apartheid state. It was established as an apartheid state from the very beginning, and it still is, 75 later, years later, an apartheid state with privileges for people like me, Israeli Jews. And that's it. And that's how it was. Anybody who, anybody who mentions Israel and the word democracy in the same sentence without saying that it's an absurd proposition or an oxymoron is lying or uh, completely ignorant and uninformed. This, so this whole charade of an Israeli democracy, the whole charade that somehow it's something that you can fix by giving some money to these people and giving a few passes to those people and just calming things down is absolutely ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. On the, we're standing at the edge of a precipice, the likes of which has, we have never seen in Palestine. We have never seen. The Israeli press doesn't care. The majority of Israeli society doesn't care. They feel it might infringe on some of their rights as privileged people within the apartheid regime. And that's it. So that's really all there is to it. On the other hand, which is interesting, Isa Amro, who was a human rights defender from Hebron. Well, and you just spent a lot of time with Isa. Yeah, exactly. Isa was here now. He was here for, you're in DC for a few days. He was in New York and so on. And he gave some absolutely tremendous, really fantastic talks here. He's a, he's a brilliant person and, and a gifted speaker. And he's a good friend, not to let the friendship get in the way. And, but my, my, my praise is sincere. And he runs one of the most important and one of the most effective, if not the most effective, grassroots organization in Palestine, which is called Youth Against Settlements. And you and I discussed it. I wrote about him many times. And I've got an interview that I did with him that we're going to drop on, on the podcast and Patreon in the next couple of weeks. But my point is that he was here and because he's so smart and because he is a human rights defender, recognized human rights defender, even by the State Department and the State Department and, and quite a few members of Congress and the Senate have written letters to support him when Israel put him on trial. So on the one hand, civil disobedience and peaceful resistance are not permitted to Palestinians living under Israeli military law. So that would be the West Bank and so forth. It's not permitted. So having 10 or more than 10 people in the same place is you're already breaking the law, doing everything that he does, which is civil disobedience and peaceful resistance. Uh, he can write a book about it. I mean, I think MLK is looking down at him from the heavens and he's feeling very proud because he carries MLK's name all the time. He does it brilliantly. He's very successful in it. But people here don't know that it is illegal. That is why he's being harassed. What he's doing is he's breaking the law by doing what we've been expecting Palestinians to do, and they've actually been doing most of the time that they've been resisting. And at the same time, he met with senators and staffers and the people within the State Department and members of Congress, and very little of what he told them about the reality on the ground. I mean, this particular thing about nonviolent resistance being, being prohibited by law, but in terms of the conditions of Palestinians, in terms of the, the settler violence, they know. And they would go privately. You're saying very, just to complete the sentence, you're saying very little of what he shared, they seemed unaware of. Yes. They knew what yes. he had to say. They know what's going on. Yes. And yet they keep funding Israel. They keep funding. And they, they've been, I mean, they've been very supportive on a personal level, signing for him and meeting him and so on. 
while he's here in DC, but they still vote for the money to go and the weapons to go and so on. So it, it, they're willing to, they're willing to study the issue a little bit more and they're willing to learn a little bit more about the issue and they're willing to do all these kind of stuff, which I mean, that's what they say in the meetings, but at the end of the day, nothing's changing. At the end of the day, Blinken shows up. Now, granted, Blinken is a political appointee. He is not a state department bureaucrat. And the bureaucrats usually know more than the politicians. And, and if it was up to them, probably things would have been different. And he shows up and this is what he's got. I mean, he's got nothing. He's got absolutely nothing. And this is, it's a problem in two ways. Number one, they're supplying the money and they're so, so powerful. Nobody can stand up to them. And number two, they are still able to present themselves as somehow willing to be and able to be some kind of mediators in this issue as though they are not part of the problem. And what Isa keeps saying, you are the problem. You are the enemy. You're, and he said this to Blinken because he met Blinken. Blinken actually who, asked to meet who, with him. Who said, who said this to Blinken? Isa. He said, you are the problem. Oh, you, wow. We see you as the enemy. We see you as the enemy. He said this to him. Face to face. Uh, face to face. Because he was invited to meet Blinken. Blinken was in Ramallah in 20, last year or the year before. And how did Blinken <laughs> respond to this? In shock. Everybody in the room responded in shock. And so they know and they hear it from him. And they, and I mean, if they invite him to speak, he's going to speak. If they invite him to meet, he's going to say his piece. And here we are. This is it. And somehow Americans walk around there feeling like these people over there have some kind of a problem. So this is very serious. Americans need to, I think, do two things. Number one, demand their elected officials either study the issue or stop lying about it. And number two, demand that their elected officials stop supporting Israel and demand sanctions. There's no other way this thing is going to change. We need outside sanctions enforced by countries outside of Israel. Yeah. Severe sanctions. What other way? Bernie Sanders at one point at some I think it was J Street Conference or something, talked about conditioning aid to Israel respect of human rights. And that's all, you know, great, but you've got to implement that. You, if you say it, that's fine. But if you're not going to implement, if you're not going to put your life on the line and your career on the line in order to accomplish this, it's not going to happen. Israel is light years of anybody who's trying to stand in its way. Now, the good thing is, and this is again, something that Isa also highlights all the time, the more Israel has to invest in defending itself, the more Israel has to think up about ideas and spend money on defending itself, even if it's preemptively, like with the IHRA, uh, the new definition they have of anti-Semitism, and I can get into that in a second if you want. All these different tactics that they come up with uh, in order to defend themselves, that's money that they're spending. It's making it very expensive for them. It's making the occupation, it's making the apartheid regime very expensive, very costly. And the more we can get it to be costly and expensive, the better until we get it to a point where it's so expensive that it's prohibitive. And that's when they collapse. But that's not going to happen without sanctions. You know, that we're going to have to take it up a notch. But Israel is defending. He talks about actions that he, could, that he and his group do uh, put together in Hebron. Because Hebron is where he operates. And Hebron is also the biggest city in the West Bank. And so it's an important place to be operating. And it's also really the only the city in the West Bank where actually settlers are living inside the city among the Palestinians. The other place is Jerusalem, but that's a little different. So operating in Hebron is extremely important. And every anything that he organizes in action, and they have to bring in a brigade of soldiers and write reports, that's millions and millions of dollars being, and that's exactly the idea. It has to be, they have to be able, they have to be made to spend so much 
And as much as possible, we should be, this should be them spending a lot with us putting in as little as effort as possible because we don't have the resources, we don't have the means. And so if we can make it expensive for them to a point where it's prohibitive when it collapses, but it's not going to happen unless, as long as people trade and buy weapons and do all these things with Israel and consider Israel a legitimate force and a legitimate state to do business with and to be and to interact with. So that aspect of it, of making it expensive. And I noticed it too. I mean, every time I participated in any, in an action or protest, I would look at it and think, this has got to be custom of fortune to spend all this money on keeping all of these soldiers and all these border police and the commanders and the intelligence and the information to come and because, I don't know, 20 activists were marching with a Palestinian flag. And they bring a, you know, they bring hundreds of soldiers to respond. And I tell this story, it's a funny story, but it's, it's very telling. I was in Hebron a few years ago with Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace are the greatest people in the world. It's probably, the, it's, there's no organization that is, that I think even comes close to, to, to their, to the way they act, to the way they operate, to their dedication and so on. And a lot of these guys are past 80 and they're still just out there, whether it's Palestine, whether it's Cuba, whether it's Okinawa, where the military has does some, is the military is doing some terrible things. They're there. And so I took, they asked me to come with them on a trip to Palestine a few years ago. And uh, we were in Hebron, of course, we're visiting East. And they were ready to fight. I mean, these guys are there to cause trouble, to provoke. Which They're I have there. to, I just had to interject. Don't go to Palestine and just cause trouble on your own because you don't know what sort of repercussions that's going to have on the Palestinians who will live there, who will be there after you leave. Just saying, I love the enthusiasm, but make sure you're actually working with Palestinians if you're. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, so we went to Isa and we were doing this stuff with him and yeah, he goes, okay, now in, in the old city of Hebron, which is where he operates, which is where all the problems are. And just to give people an idea, Hebron, the city of Hebron has closed, the entire city of Hebron has close to 300,000 people. It's the largest city in the West Bank. And it's also the richest, a lot of trade, a lot of shops, a lot of, a lot of stuff. Going Amazing on. market. One of my favorite And then you go into the old yeah. city and you go to the old city of Hebron, which is very small. That's where the settlers are. And there's about 20,000 Palestinians living in the old city and maybe 800 settlers. And the 800 settlers have taken over, caused checkpoints and problems and hundreds of sh thousands of shops closed down. And God knows how many, almost 50% of the apartments are empty now because people had to leave. Anyway, terrible stuff going on. And that's the center of this thing. So the main street, the main business avenue of the old city of Hebron is called Shuhada Street, and it's been closed since an Israel, since a Jewish terrorist committed a massacre in Hebron in the Ibrahimi Mosque. So when after that happened, they closed that street to Palestinians, and all the stores were have to close, and all the people who lived there had to leave. So it's empty. It's a ghost town. It's an absolute ghost town. So Isa said, "Let's go do an action over there." He went to the regular market. Brought, he bought some cabbage and cauliflower and God knows what else. And he said, let's stand along the street and pretend like we're selling. Now it's a ghost town, but nobody walks there. Nobody drives there. I mean, occasionally you see an army vehicle or a settler vehicle, but it's dead. There's nothing there. And we're standing on the sidewalk, me and these veterans, crazy veterans for peace activists and Asa and a couple of other Palestinians. And, and I'm standing there thinking, what the hell is good? This is nuts. And they're enthusiastically. Holding up cauliflower, cabbage, come and get your cat. Oh, there's no, nobody there. And it's a long street. It's not like a small place. In less than five minutes, less than five minutes, there was an entire brigade of paratroopers. I don't know how many armed police. And the entire 
security apparatus of the settlers. Now there were less than 10, maybe 10 of us. And I don't know how many, I could, there's no way to count. Paratroopers. We're not talking about just bored little soldiers who had nothing to do. We're talking about paratroopers. You'd expect to be fighting, I don't know what. And I was thinking the reaction is so insane, number one. How, it was, it's such an expensive reaction to mobilize and to come and get the and get a thing and start arguing for them to just show up and do this madness. And of course, everybody's arguing and yelling and shouting. But the, we did nothing. We bought a few pieces of cauliflower and cabbage. And they brought in an entire brigade of, of paratroopers. That's the ratio that we want, except we want it on a larger scale. We don't want it only in Hebron from time to time. We want it all in all throughout all of Palestine all the time. And that's of course the missing link because for all kinds of reasons, but that's exactly the missing thing here. But that's exactly what making it expensive, making it costly is the way it's supposed to operate. And if we can do that, then I think we stand a chance. I really like that. And I haven't analyzed the history much myself, but I have heard that there is a lot of evidence from other resistances against fascism that small, those types of small acts of resistance from anybody, including the soldiers themselves, all of those things can actually help. So yes, two Israelis, two Palestinians that yes, when you resist this apartheid, this basically fascistic government. Every little act of resistance can help. And this story you're sharing, yeah, I love it. It's such a great illustration of that. Yeah, so, you know, that's the, uh, like I said, on the one hand, you've got serious people doing serious work on the ground. I mean, Palestinians, both these, a few handful of Israelis too, but mostly Palestinians. Agreed. And then you've got Israeli society, which is completely apathetic at best. Although even, although they're not, uh, even though they're apathetic, they're fully full participants in this. And then you've got the U.S. that somehow pretends like it's some, like a neutral observer or a neutral mediator, funding and arming the violence and making it possible for the worst of the worst, the most racist, the most violent, the most hateful elements within Israeli politics to come here and raise enormous amounts of money. And Regavim, again, it's one of those things that goes under the radar. I'm sure most people have never heard of Regavim. It's R-E-G-A-V-I-M. They, they have this whole media campaign, very successful, showing how Palestinians in the West Bank are taking over Jewish lands, how they're building illegally on Jewish land, or they're taking over Jewish homes, how they're stealing Jewish money, Jewish Israeli water. And the same thing in the Nakab in the South, and the same thing in Jerusalem. And they had this, in the, and they had this campaign for a long time. And the person who founded Ragavim is Bitsalem Spotrich one of the two heads of this, of the snake, if you will, of this monster, racist, violent, hateful creature movement. And they are, and he is minister of finance and a minister, because minister of finance, of course, is not enough. It's not a big enough job. He's also a minister within the ministry of defense, not an undersecretary, like a second secretary within the ministry of defense in charge of the civil administration, which is the bureaucracy that deals with the day-to-day life of Palestinians in the West Bank. This is the reality. This is what America is doing. It's not just that America is sending money. America is making it possible for this to, America is encouraging this. Enabling. No, encouraging to allow, right. to take right. the JDL making off. Making it possible, yeah. To take the JDL off the terrorist list, that is more than enabling. That's more than enabling. It's, it's, almost, it's, a lot, it's almost encouraging. I mean, why would you do that? Why would you do that unless you felt, as a government, 
or as a bureaucracy, if it's a state department, whoever the hell made the decision to, to do something like this. Why would you do that unless you wanted to specifically help these people get elected and then encourage them to do what they're doing? There's no other reason to do this. I mean, obviously, I'm sure Israel and Israeli groups, NGO, pro-Israeli and nonprofits here in the U.S. were pushing very hard for this. But here we are. And here we go. And uh, so it's more than just enabling. We've gone beyond enabling. This is very serious. I think, like I said, we're standing at the edge of a precipice and, and a sense that everything should be allowed to just operate whole business as usual sense is just really, really incredibly reckless. I'm talking about this. Like the, I know it's like gloom and doom doom and gloom, but I don't know what else to say. Well, let's, I've got a specific example that is at least interesting. I think it's interesting. So the Jewish currents are the very left-wing outlet for, based in the U.S. And they wrote, they have an article about Yossi Zabari. Have you heard, did you hear about him at a protest? I'm trying to think. I may have. You can say no. That's okay. No, but something rings a bell, but. Okay, start to recap it as best I can. Okay, yeah. Basically, Yossi Zabari is Israeli activist, poet, comedian, and he was asked to speak at one of these big demonstrations in Tel Aviv, these big anti-government demonstrations in Tel Aviv. This one was on January 21st, and he asked the organizers, can I bring a Palestinian flag with me? And so the organizers said no. And they told Jewish Currents, their explanation was, we want the messages delivered from our protest to be only about the democratic character of Israel. Yeah. I mean, the irony, of course, is too obvious. Yeah. We're going to suppress this, somebody being allowed to freely express themselves by carrying the flag of the people who are oppressed and whose land has been stolen because we want to make sure to highlight the democratic character of Israel. Yeah. And good for him. Yes. Now I remember it's Sabari. I don't know why they write. I'm sorry. I'm Sab- sorry. No, yeah. It's not your fault. That's how it's spelled in English with a Z. It should be Tz. It's oh, Sabari. But yeah. Oh yeah. They could totally write that. T-F-A-T-A-R-I. I guess it's Sabari. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So of course, of course, I know what you're talking about now. Yes. So, I mean, so the point to the article is basically what you said before in a previous podcast that yes, there's these big protests, but within the protests against the government calling for more democracy calling to oppose queerphobia, homophobia, within that protest of 20,000, 80,000 people, only a very small fraction are people who actually also are concerned about the oppression of Palestinians. Yeah. And it's about, I think I said this, we talked about this in the past too. There's three, there's two things that symbolize, show us that they're not, they don't want Palestinians included or three things. One is cases like this, because it's about your right, that they don't want the Palestinian flag anywhere. Two is the fact that they hold these protests in Tel Aviv. Lisa Amro, who was one of the leading, leading voices calling for freedom and democracy, be it to include Palestinians in the freedom or democracy, he can't go to Tel Aviv. Palestinians from the West Bank can't go to Tel Aviv. Even Palestinians from other places, if they do go, they'll probably be arrested along the way. It's almost, it's like black Americans driving around and they pulled over for no reason. I mean, it'd be the same thing. The profiling is severe. And the third thing is that they still talk about a democracy. And what they're talking about is the fear that their privilege within the apartheid regime must, might be eroded somehow by this new government. That's the fear. That's what they're talking about. Because there's always been opposition to, to the homophobia has always been part of Israeli society. I grew up in Israeli society. And even today, when I'm there a lot, with, I've got family, my family is Israeli. The discourse 
Uh, it's a homophobic society. It's a racist society. Racist societies are racist societies across the board. You know what I mean? Even if they like to portray themselves as loving of one group or another or pro one group or another on, on Facebook and stuff like that. They're racist societies, the homophobic society. It's, it's, it's a, this is the reality within Israeli society. And, and this exactly demonstrates, these three or four things demonstrate, they're not talking about democracy. They're talking about a fear of eroding their rights within the apartheid regime. That's it. That's all they're talking about. And it's very convenient for them to pretend that they're not homophobes, but they are. It's very convenient for them to oh, try before, to show beyond, that the I was just going to say, beyond convenient, it's called pinkwashing, right? They say, yes, it is. oh, yeah. basically, it's okay to oppress Palestinians because Israel cares about queer people and Palestinians don't. Yeah. I mean, I talked to an Israeli who basically said that. It's like, they're basically, these people are backwards because they don't care about, yeah. they don't care about queer people. I mean, this is a lot to get into, but I'll just mention the Palestinian, the Israeli who I was talking to who was saying that he had dark skin. He was, I think his mother was Yemeni or something. And so I'm looking at Yassi Tzabari. He's also very dark skin. I mean, you have so many intersections of discrimination and oppression, and you have people like Yassi who's, at least in this case, made some effort to speak up for Palestinians, despite the fact that he is a privileged Jew. But there's plenty of people who are oppressed within Israeli society because of their skin color, but nevertheless still use the fact that they are Jewish yeah. to oppress others. And, and Yossi Tzabari comes from the rural community that's been heavily oppressed. He's a Yemenite Jew as well, or his heritage is Yemenite Jewish. And in that community, when they came from Yemen, Arab Jews, the entire community of Jews that came from Arab countries still are and were really the prejudice against them and the discrimination against them was and still is severe, although it's not as bad as some others. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, it's funny because, if, so, so Mike, I always say, so when they drop these one-ton bombs over civilian population in Gaza, where you have over 2 million people in a prison, do they make sure that they, that they single out people who might be LGBTQ or whatever, and they know exactly how to identify them so they don't kill them? I mean, this is absurd. When they drop a one-ton bomb, and they murder babies and they murder children and men and women and everybody else. Suddenly they're kids. Suddenly they don't care so much about these, these fine points. It's such hypocrisy. And this pinkwashing is far, I think, worse than people actually give it realize. It's a terrible thing. It's so cynical to Very pretend cynical. to care about a particular group where in fact you really don't care. And you're basically a racist homophobic society, which is, so that's the reality. And like I said, twice or three times already in this. So just in this conversation, we're on the edge of a dangerous precipice and nothing is going to change. No amount of cosmetics is going to sell. Yeah, I guess we'll do our best to follow what is happening. And yeah, and I'll say maybe one thing. Yeah, this, yeah, this is in Zoom and Gloom. Um, <laughs> oh, I like that. That was good one, Mika. Isa presents in his wonderful speeches and some of them can be found on, uh, maybe we can put the links. He did one at Busboys and Poets and one at Plymouth Congregational Church. And they did, it was live streaming. So they have those links exist on their Facebook pages and then a couple of others that were private events. But he presents a very optimistic, optimistic outlook because he says, look, we're sitting here in a room in America and all of you people, now all of us just need to get up and do something. You know, if every single one of us organized and mobilized and did one thing and spoke to one person, 
then, you know, think about it. How many people do we need to actually to create this revolution? And so I, I think that's the way to think about it. So that's the way to think about it. Not to be depressed and sit down, but to be energized and angry and frustrated and to get up in the morning and say, how the hell am I going to? And to think creatively. So that's, uh, that's how I think we should end this conversation today. The point of encouraging people to get up and act. I really like that. And yeah. maybe we will just end it there. Maybe I'll edit this. But I thought it would be sweet to explain for people who are confused. We're talking about the president of the Palestinian Authority as Mahmoud Abbas, but you also referred to him as Abu Mazen. Can you explain yes. what that means? He just goes by these two. In Mahmoud Abbas's official name, Abu Mazen is more uh, like a, a kind of What's, like a nickname. In oh, Arabic, you call yeah, somebody please. Abu by the name of his son, of his eldest son. And so his son is called Mazen. So he's Abu Mazen. He's the father of Mazen. It's a very just, common way of referring to using it as a name for people. Isa is Isa, but sometimes I call him Abu Wathan. His son's name is Wathan. He's got a son called Wathan. I mean, that's something. It's just the way you call people. They go by two names. The guys guy will go by, or women too, mothers too. Yeah. What do they call it for mothers again? Im something. Im Wathan Wat or Im Mazen. The mother of Mazen. Yeah. Im, no, I just think it's very sweet. It just, it's very endearing. Have, yes. like John's son, son of John, but it's cute that family is so important that you're defined by one of your yeah, absolutely. that's very sweet. Right. Yeah, and it's very endearing. Yes, it is very in the case of Abu Mazen, it's not so much. But I know the bad people don't like him very much, but yeah. Yeah, or I his think, son. But yeah. I mean, this is now we're going off, but it's interesting that have you seen the movie Mayor? Not yet. Oh my gosh, you have to see it. We should do a little yeah. review of it. it. Came out a couple of years ago. But okay. I think it's excellent. I think you should totally okay. watch it and then talk about it on the okay. podcast. Is it, uh, is it on Netflix? It's not. It really it should. Was. I thought what? it was at one Ooh, point. I don't think so. I think I would have heard if it was. I, I think it's five bucks or less to rent it on YouTube. Yeah, I'll find or, it somewhere. Yeah. Or iTunes. But the point I was going to make is, yes, a lot of people have negative feelings toward Abu Bazan, Abu Abbas, and the whole Palestinian Authority in general. But people have very positive feelings, apparently, towards the mayor of Ramallah yeah. and because I guess he's doing more on the ground stuff and mm -hmm. people see him and meet him and he's doing the best he can as the mayor a very of difficult capital. Situation, yeah. yeah. The way the tagline that got me to watch the movie was the mayor. What's it like being the mayor of a city without a country? Well, we'll definitely, I'll watch it. I'll make a point of watching it and we'll talk about it. I think it'll be great. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, cool. Awesome. Thanks again. Excellent. Thank you. And, and we'll talk soon. We'll talk soon. Awesome. Take care. Thanks. Bye.